Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Recent research from Penn State's Population Research Institute indicates minority students in Pennsylvania are leaving public schools of diversity for charter schools populated by like minority students. Plainly put, black students are leaving for charter schools with other black students. Latino students are leaving public schools for primarily Latino charter schools. We're going to be discussing this issue of uh, diversity in charter schools and bring in the public schools as well during our conversation. Our guest today, Dr. Erica Frankenberg. She's an associate professor of education at Penn State, an associate with the Population Research Institute. Dr. Frankenberg, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me join you. Also joining us on the program is Tim Eller, executive director of the Keystone Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Mr. Eller, welcome to the program. Scott, thank you for having me. And finally, Anna Myers, who is uh, with the Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools. Ms. Myers, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Scott. If you have a question or comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, Dr. Frankenberg, I'm probably going to start with you uh, for most of the first few minutes of the program today, talking about uh, the research. Uh, generally, what did your research find? Yeah, our research found a couple of things. We were interested in looking at charter schools, which certainly are growing in Pennsylvania, and we were looking at charter schools within the 10 metropolitan areas in, in our state that had at least two charter schools. What we found were a couple of key points. First, black and Latino students, as you mentioned, are moving to charter, when they leave traditional public schools and transfer to charter schools a year later, they're going to schools that have a higher percentage of same-race students. Now, that doesn't mean they're leaving necessarily diverse public schools. In fact, we found that particularly for black students, the traditional public schools they were leaving had a fairly high percentage of black students, but they were going to schools that were even higher in black percentage. And the findings for white students were mixed. Um, For white students in elementary and middle school, they were going to slightly more diverse schools. In high school, white students in our metropolitan areas were going to uh, slightly more isolated schools. The, the second point that I think is really key and is somewhat unique about this research is we are also able to look at what kind of choices these students had. And so we looked at all the different charter schools within a 10-mile radius of, of the student, and we found that these students, first of all, had a lot of different choices. And this is true both in the Philadelphia metropolitan area but in other metropolitan areas around the, the states. Most black, white, and Latino students all had at least 10 charter schools. So first of all, there are lots of choices that students have, and they had lots of different choices across the racial composition spectrum. However, what we saw in terms of the choices were that when black and Latino students had um, choices, they tended to prefer moving to schools that had uh, 0 to 20% white students. Conversely, white students, when they had different choices, they tended to go to schools that were 60 to 100% white. And this held even when they had, um, when we considered, for example, factors like distance. You know, students were going at least a mile to a mile and a half beyond their nearest charter school. So uh, it really helps, I think, to flesh out this picture, uh, although certainly also raises a lot of questions about the fact that distance isn't the only factor that that families are considering, 
Um, and it certainly suggests that uh, racial composition is something that is also a factor. The last point that I think is just really important to mention um, because of the implications for all of us to think about is the fact that the fewest schools that were available in terms of charter schools were the ones that would be the most diverse, 40 to 60% white schools. And, and we can get into more why this might be the case, but I think we have to think in terms of the way our law is structured and the kinds of um, policy incentives that may not be there right now to produce diverse charter schools. So we want to talk about all those things. There's a lot of information there. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I read a quote from you where you said that uh, this doesn't surprise you. Now, we should provide a little more background. You have uh, done a lot of research into diversity and racial demographics in, uh, in schools, public schools, traditional public schools. So this is nothing new for you. But when you said that uh, it didn't surprise you. Why? Well, I think we have to understand sort of the context in which we're looking in. First of all, we've seen public, traditional public school segregation increasing for decades now. Um, and particularly in the Northeast, uh, segregation for black students is higher than it's ever been. So we have that larger context. And then we also have the fact that in many instances, Again, through no fault of the individual charter school operators, the way in which our charter school laws in in the states that have them are set up, there are not really incentives for um, creating diverse student enrollments, thinking about um, how that intersects with the public schools. And so, you know, what we have seen from studying, you know, 50 to 60 years of school, different variations of school choice, so whether it's magnet schools, charter schools, uh, controlled choice programs that districts have, we find that there needs to be some kind of mechanism to to help to overcome the racial stratification in our society. You know, we have deep residential segregation, and if we don't have ways in which we build into the policy to try to overcome the fact that um, networks might be stratified and so knowledge about char- charter schools might not be available to all across different social networks, there are a lot of different reasons that um, we, the assumptions of school choice being equitably available to all and the like may not um, bear out given the, the challenges of our larger societal context. Right I want to talk to uh, our representatives of charter schools about that in just a moment. But I, before we do, and again, I want to make sure that, that we cover the background here, something you said uh, in your last answer probably many people do not realize. In, you mentioned about uh, where people live and the segregation that we have in this country, where people live. I saw a figure that said that uh, the United States is more segregated now than at any time since 1968. And think about that. That's when actually desegregation laws took effect where students were as you know the term back then was bust to uh, uh, other uh, public school districts so how have we become so segregated uh, from a residential point of view so the the finding you are talking about was looking at public school segregation so one of the reasons that we see the rising segregation today is that Many school districts that were under more comprehensive school desegregation orders 
ended them because of some Supreme Court rulings in the 1990s that kind of lessened the oversight that federal judges were having over D.C. segregation plans. So that's a really important thing. The second thing we see, um, certainly the, a growth in school choice and um, the fact that not all new forms of school choice and, and vouchers is, are probably the best example are going to be designed with integration in mind. And so um, we've actually had a sort of minuscule um, declines in residential segregation for blacks and whites in particular, which is most of what we've studied over, over time. So we have ever so slightly declining residential segregation, but we also have fewer policies that are trying to break the residential school link, which is what school desegregation plans did. And so as a result, schools are more closely reflecting the neighborhoods that are still fairly segregated. And so that's a major reason that we're seeing this rising um, school segregation. The, the two other pieces that I think are really important to think about is, one, there's actually been some sociological research showing that school desegregation can have a perpetuation effect. So one of the arguments for school desegregation is that it will lead to more uh, residential desegregation, and we have seen that in a number of areas around the country that had more con comprehensive desegregation efforts. The second piece, and one of the, the earliest arguments around charter schools, was that we have very high levels of between school district segregation today, and, and we rarely bus across school district boundary lines. Um, charter schools argued that they could overcome the segregating effect of school district boundaries by drawing students from across school districts. And the way that the Pennsylvania charter school laws, you can get students from other districts and they're even provided free transportation. So we do have, you know, some, some really helpful pieces of the charter school law in Pennsylvania that could help us to overcome this segregation that is deeply entrenched and in some aspects growing. But, as of yet, we're not really seeing the fact that that's happened on a widespread basis. One final question before I get, we get to our other guest. Uh, I mean, this is one of those uh, questions that uh, you know I think many people can probably answer themselves, but it's worth it is worth verbalizing. Why is this important? Why is it important that there's uh, diversity in our school populations? Absolutely, it's a really important question. Probably should have led with it. Yeah, really. Uh, I, I should have led with it. <laughs> um, yeah, we have uh, sort of six to seven decades of research now talking about the really essential benefits of desegregation or integration, however you want to call it. I think of them as being in kind of two, two buckets, I'd like to say. So one is talking about the harms of racial isolation. This drove the 1954 Brown decision talking about um, the inherent unequal nature of segregated minority schools in the South. Um, and we find that still today, when we have concentration of black and Latino students, that, that overwhelmingly overlaps with concentrations of low-income students. And there oftentimes are not the kind of educational resources, although we can all think of exceptions. So, so that's one key um, reason that Racial isolation is harmful, and that's been reaffirmed by the Supreme Court in the last decade by the federal government. The second bucket, which I think is really important for us to think about perhaps here in Pennsylvania, 
is the benefits that accrue to all students, uh, regardless of race, in integrated schools. So this is talking about the benefits for white students as well as for students of color, that you learn to problem solve better, that you're more likely to form cross-racial friendships, which reduce prejudice and the formation of stereotypes, that there are a lot of benefits, both um, social and academic and sociological, that really persist long beyond um, your, your graduation. So this is some of the research that looks into the perpetuation of integrated graduates of integrated schools are more likely to live in integrated neighborhoods, go to integrated colleges, feel more comfortable in diverse workspaces. And, and that's a really key component of the, the current push for integrated schools that all students benefit. And given our diverse country, uh, you know, we have a majority of students of color now in our public schools that all students need to be prepared for that um, country that they're going to live in as adults. We're going to hear from the charter schools in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about uh, recent Penn State research looking at the racial uh, makeup of uh, charter schools and and what it found that mostly minority students tend to go to charter schools that have a large minority population, whether it be black, whether it be Latino. Our guest today, Dr. Erica Frankenberg, she's an associate uh, with the Population Research uh, Institute at Penn State, lead researcher on this uh, on this research, or I should say, on this research. Also Associate Professor of Education at Penn State. And we're joined by Anna Myers with the Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools and Tim Eller, Executive Director of the Keystone Alliance for Public Charter Schools. If you have a question or comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. You can send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. All right, Tim Eller, I want to bring you into the conversation now along with uh, Anna Myers. But uh, let's talk about this. Uh, do you, the, the research that you just heard from Dr. Frankenberg, your, your reaction to it? I, I agree with the research. I mean, it, it is a fact that um, charter schools, when you look at charter schools in Pennsylvania, um, are predominantly enrolling um african-american students that's that's a fact i mean the date the date the data with the department of education shows that um what's the percentage do you know yeah the the percentage for charter schools statewide um about 43 percent of charter schools are made up of african-american students um and that's not a shock because when you look at where the majority of pennsylvania's charter schools are located they're located in urban areas uh philadelphia has 50 percent of the state's charter schools um, and Philadelphia is predominantly, or a good majority of Philadelphia is African American. Um, but I, I think this, this, the, the set, the, the idea of segregation. When you talk about segregation from decades ago, that's when African American students were forced to go to one school, white students were forced to go to another school. That's not the case here when it comes to public school choice and charter schools. Parents are voting with their feet in these areas where charter schools are located and are removing their children from the traditional public education school setting because of academic problems. Um, 
when you look where the predominant number of charter schools are located, the traditional schools in those areas are not performing well. They have high dropout rates. Students are two, three, four years behind their grade level that they're at. Parents are fed up with that. Parents are voting with their feet and are moving to these charter schools um, to give their children a better opportunity, which many or the vast majority of charter schools throughout Pennsylvania have. So yes, it's a fact that charter schools, their their number of students who are enrolled are predominantly African-American students. But this, I, I don't look at this as a segregation issue. I look at this as what's in the best interest of children, and parents are making that decision. But let me just also add something that Dr. Frankenberg's research showed, and this may be one of the, the real... I don't know, significant parts of it is that those African-American families, the children, the parents, are deciding to even go further away from uh, one charter school that maybe, you know, may have more diversity and travel further so that they are in uh, another charter school that is predominantly black, predominantly Latino. Right, right. And that's the beauty of school choice. You know, this is parental decision. Um, There's a few articles I have read where um, African-American parents actually are quoted as saying they prefer their child to attend a charter school that has um, a higher enrollment of uh, African-American kids like their own. It can be a culture issue. It can be a identity issue, those types of things. So, but but those students are not being forced into those schools. Those parents are making that decision, looking at the options that are there and choosing that school for their uh, uh, child. Anna Myers, uh, you were with the Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools. Uh, your thoughts on uh, the research and what Tim just had to say. So, I, again, I also, like Tim, agree with the research, and I also agree with Tim Um, When I think of the word segregation, I think of what was happening in this country, you know, prior and during the civil rights movement. So I think segregation may not be the appropriate word to use that it relates to charter schools, because no one attends a charter school unless their parents make that choice. It's about school choice. And I think the waiting list that we're seeing in Pennsylvania, you know, are showing that there is a huge demand for the charter schools. I don't think anybody debates that. So, you know, and basically charter schools, they don't limit entry to students who are not from a specific race or from a specific culture. And students are admitted on a first-come, first-served basis. The charter schools are required by law to take all students who want to attend, again, on a first-come, first-served basis. And the parents are the ones who are deciding where to send their children to school within the options that, you know, are available to them. So, and I think one thing that's important to point out is that many charter schools in Pennsylvania open in high-poverty areas where the, where the traditional um, public schools are actually low-performing and when there's a higher percentage of minorities. And, you know, this is why you're seeing the correlation of, you know, and a concentration of African-Americans all in the same schools. But basically, I think it's a, it's a demographic problem. So, and, and parents are making those choices because they're viewing charter schools as safer schools for their children. But um, let me let me follow up on that and go back to uh, what the, Dr. Frankenberg has said about uh, uh, some of the benefits of diversity. I mean, I understand that the, the facts show that the parents are making the, the, the choices here for where their children are attending school. But is it necessarily, I mean, it, what is the impact if uh, those those uh, children are going to a school that is less diverse, Anna? Well, here, I I just started this job about four weeks ago. 
with um, the Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools. And I have been spending most of my time right now visiting charter schools all over the state. I have probably been to about 10 to 15 schools at this point, lots of them in the Philadelphia area, lots of them in the Pittsburgh area. So those are schools that pretty much describe what we're talking about. So I visited one school specifically in Pittsburgh, City High Charter School, where there's 64% minority, but the graduating rate is 95, uh, 95% graduating rate economic disadvantage in that school is 69%. I think we need to look at the end goal here. I mean, these schools are taking kids, whether they're a minority, you know, African-Americans, Hispanics, and they're bringing them, to a, bringing them into a safe environment where they can thrive and better position themselves to grow academically. And these kids are graduating, and they will most likely become, you know, make something of themselves. Um, by having had the opportunity to attend a charter school. So I think we need to concentrate on the end goal, which is to graduate as many students as possible with a quality education rather than, you know, be preoccupied with um, whether or not they are in a school that has, you know, a a high percentage of minorities, whether them be Hispanics or African-Americans. I mean, I am a Hispanic myself. I immigrated to this country. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that, yeah, Hispanics, they prefer to to be in communities where there's people like them. I mean, if you travel outside of Pennsylvania, you know, to high areas, to areas like Miami, for instance, in Florida, where you see, you know, high percentage of a Hispanic population, those folks seem to aggregate, to congregate together because they feel more comfortable that way. And, you know, perhaps that's what's happening here, and, and that's why the parents are making the choices that they're making. Dr. Freckenberg, let me bring you back into the conversation. Um, you know, both of our guests from charter schools said that, you know, one of the reasons this is happening is because where the charter schools are located, uh, mostly in urban areas, uh, where there is a high concentration of minority students. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there are a couple points I want to raise. One is the fact that we looked in another piece related to this at um, segregation by the urbanicity of the charter school location. We actually found that even in suburbs, and about 10% of African-American charter school students were in the suburbs, they were still making the same kind of, in fact, they were making even more segregated moves to charter schools than African-American students who are transferring in urban areas. So this isn't necessarily just an issue about where the location of the charter school is. It's something we're seeing across metropolitan areas. The, the other two points I think are really important to, to just um, respond to are um, both guests talked about this in terms of forced segregation. You know, I, I grew up in the South where there was the legacy of forced segregation, and certainly we don't have... Um, George Wallace's, like we did in Alabama, enforcing segregation today. However, we still have research that shows that there are harms on the aggregate when we look at the racial composition, regardless of whether it's state-enforced or is happening as a result of policies, choices that parents are making. And so that's why we sought to look at this issue, because we do think it is part of the overall quality issue. Um, and the last thing I think is just important to say, you know, there, there are lots of ways in which I think uh, policies can have unintended consequences. And so the, the reason we, we examine this is to think about are there ways in which charter schools are unintentionally in the aggregate maybe um, not welcoming students across diverse lines. And, and so certainly there has to be some more study looking at why parents are making the choices they're making, but I think it's important to also look 
at this extent to which charter school policies, outreach, and the like may be resulting, contributing to some of the patterns we're seeing. Tim Miller, let me ask you, would you like to see more diversity in charter schools, Pennsylvania's charter schools? I think diversity is great. You know, having having um, students from African-American culture, the white culture, the Hispanic culture, I think that's great in any school. Um, but I think, as Anna had pointed out in, when she was speaking, the end goal here is high-quality academic options for students. Um, that's not to discount the diversity issue. That's not to discount um, African Americans and whites integrating in the same in the same school. Um, the ultimate, my ultimate belief is, is that um, this is about what's right for students and students get in the education that a their parents are paying for and b taxpayers across Pennsylvania are paying for. So um, not that we need to f- let focus less on diversity. We need to focus more on the purpose of public education. And that's ensuring our children, our next generation, is prepared to take the reins of this nation when they come of age. And I don't think anyone would disagree with you there. But as uh, Dr. Frankenberg said earlier, there are benefits to diversity. What do you do in particular, not you individually, but charter schools across Pennsylvania, what do you do to uh, when you are, and I, I was going to use the word recruit. What word do you uh, do you use? I mean, you don't recruit, do you? No, it's not a recruitment because attract uh, students. I guess is attracts. Uh, you're correct. Yeah. Um, but, but but let's remember where the bulk of charter schools are. The bulk of charter schools are in urban areas. Um, there are nine counties in Pennsylvania that have eighty percent of the state's charter schools. The remaining fifty-eight counties take up the other twenty percent. Um, so let, let's re- let, let's remember where these charter schools are located. So it's not that charter schools are recruiting or attracting students. What's happening is is those students, charter schools by law, as Anna had pointed out, um, are required to accept students. Um, and if they, ha- I'm sorry, receive applications from students, and if they have um, more applications than seats available, they must run a lottery. It's not a pick and choose situation. So it doesn't matter if the student's white, African American, Hispanic, Latino, you know, whatever, whatever the demographic is. Charter schools don't um, go out there and um, appeal to one community. They appeal to the the area that they serve, the district that they're located in, for any student to come to them. Um, but they are not they are not permitted by law to pick and choose. So they can't I'm sorry, I didn't mean to no, stop right. you there, but so they can't they can't um, um, uh, focus specifically on one demographic. Okay. Well let me follow up on that with Adam Myers. Anna, then how do uh, prospective students find out about uh, charter schools and how do what what are some of the factors that uh, uh, parents use to choose the charter school they want to go to they want their ch- child to go to obviously as we've determined here the research shows that race and ethnicity is one of those factors well i think you know we live in an age where there is a lot of technology available and parents are able to do research, and parents are empowered right now with greater choices on where to send their children to school. So, and like, I, I go back to the fact that, you know, I am sure that a lot of these parents that are, you know, in the minority category, like myself, are choosing certain charter schools because they feel like the environment where there are kids that are more like their own children, you know, they, they feel like their children are going to thrive in those environments. They, they so, feel more I, comfortable. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and again, I'm, I'm only bringing this point up because I've lived this, you know, when we immigrated to the United States. So, and I still see it. I'm surrounded by it. I, I am around Cuban Americans. I am around Brazilian Americans, Mexican Americans, and they seem to want to, you know, live near each other, attend the same schools because it's a cultural choice. So you come here, you assimilate the American culture, but at the same time, you can't leave behind who you are. And I think the same concept applies to African-Americans. So, again, Actually, I go back, Scott. To, yeah, go ahead. Just to interject, when we've done studies of, of parents around their preferences for schools, black parents in particular and Latinos to a lesser extent express really strong desire for integrated schools. I I actually agree with the other panelists that I think part of this we need to think we need to think about what kind of schools that these black and Latino parents are leaving and so part of the discussion needs to be thinking why are they making choices that even if in the aggregate they care about diversity they still see these segregated charter school options as their best bet and so this is part of a larger conversation but I think it's important mm -hmm. to keep in mind that um, at least in their preferences, they express a, a, a desire for racially and economically integrated schools. Dr. Frankenberg, let me ask you this question, and I don't know whether your research covered this or not, but uh, when, you know, I'm sure our guests have done this research as well, our guests from the charter schools, but did your research find what was the major factor in parents' students choosing which charter school they they would attend. I mean, I would assume that the racial makeup would just be one factor. Sure. Our, our research didn't look at this because it was just looking at the demographics, but what we found when we surveyed other studies was one of the things we thought about actually was putting in the mission of the charter school to think that that would influence parents' choices. And actually, we found some other work that when you account for racial composition, the influence of mission is insignificant. Um, there are other works that show that parents talk about the importance of academic achievement, but then when you study the choices they make, racial composition still seems to be fairly determinative. So that's why we really wanted to study this idea about the racial composition. I, I think that it would be really important in Pennsylvania to do some qualitative look work trying to understand both why white parents are making the choices, because we can't forget about the way in which white parents are making choices that then are contributing to the segregation that black and Latino parents have. But we also need to think about why are black and Latino parents making these choices, even when it would seem to contradict their overall preference for diverse schools. So I think there are lots of important questions that still come up. And then I think we have to think about charter schools. You know have charter schools considered using weighted lotteries to try to get more diversity when they have more students who apply, which is perfectly legal within our current federal and state laws, or are there ways in which they can increase their outreach um, to, to students that are underrepresented in their school? You know, Pennsylvania, I, I, I still believe, has a really friendly policy to encourage charter school integration because of the free transportation across school boundary lines. And so I think there's the potential for a real opportunity to improve some of the findings here. 
Uh, you ever think of that, Tim? I mean, of uh, more weighted selection when you're talking about the lottery. I, I'm not actually. Sh- I, I'm not actually confident that that's a factual statement. Um, I'm not challenging what the researchers talking about, but um, I don't believe charter schools can weight. Um, um, a, one demographic over another. Charter schools are required to use a lottery um, to to enroll in seats that become open and are not are not permitted to um, look at a student's background or uh, profile, if you will, to determine if that student's coming in. They're required by law to use a lottery, um, a blind lottery, if you will, um, in enrolling students. Mm-hmm. So, Anna, uh, one final question, question here. Uh, you know, one of the things that one of the reasons that this is important is that uh, you know there's not forced segregation. We've established that, but mm-hmm. the end effect may be that there is segregation if uh, if this trend does continue. Um, are you at all concerned about that? I am looking at the end goal of what the the product, the end result of what the charter schools are doing in Pennsylvania and. Overall, the graduating rates are amazing. A lot of kids that would have, you know, fallen through the system in a traditional public school are actually having a chance. And, it, you know, it's pretty much a chance of the American dream where charter schools are serving at bootstraps, as bootstraps and bringing these kids, you know, out and, you know, giving them an opportunity to become something of themselves. So one final thought that I have is that I think it's the choice of parents definitely has to do with the mission of the charter schools. That definitely has an impact. Parents can do their research. They can read about it. Charter schools have a lot of autonomy and flexibility, so not one charter school is like another. And they can serve the individual needs of students very well. So I think, you know, overall parents are most likely doing that sort of research before picking the charter school of their choice. We're almost out of time. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Dr. Erica Frankenberg is an associate professor of education, Penn State, and associate with the Population Research Institute. Uh, also joining us was Tim Eller, executive director of the Keystone Alliance for Public Charter Schools, and Anna Myers, Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Earth Day is a week from Saturday on April 22nd. There will be hundreds, maybe thousands of events focusing on the environment. But there's something new this year in cities really around the world, more than 500 of these events. It is called March for Science. It's described as the first step of a global movement to defend the vital role science plays in our health, safety, economies, and government. Among the places where there will be a March for Science is in downtown Lancaster. Talking to us today about it is Jenny Sassaman and Jay Parrish. Both are involved in the Lancaster event. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hi. Hi, Jay. Uh, if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on uh, WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Once again, phone number, 1-800-729-7532. All right, Jay Parrish, you contacted me about this, and I have to admit, I did not realize this is as big of an event as 
as it is, with over 500 and probably growing uh, around the world, not just in the United States, but the closest one to us, actually the only one in central Pennsylvania, I think State College is the closest after Lancaster, but is in Lancaster. So what's the idea behind this, this March for Science? Well, it's to stand up for the need for science in our social uh, uh, our society and in government. And this is a time when we have a lot of attacks on science and people saying, well, I don't want to, you know, pay any attention to what those scientists say, like with climate change and things like that. Uh, so this is a, a time to stand up for um, the use of science and for scientists who are under a, attack at this point. It is a very big event. It could be the largest scientific event uh worldwide uh, well at one time well I mean I don't think climate science is when I looked at the information about uh, the March for science I don't know whether climate change was mentioned but it is kind of like the elephant in the room here in that you're right there has been a lot of questioning of whether the climate change actually occurs and there have been a lot of attacks on the scientists who, uh, who who talk about it isn't that what this is really about um, I think there are very there are a lot of different things going on. There are a lot of uh, different constituencies, a lot of different areas of science. Uh, as Jenny will talk about with with education, uh, there's people who have a particular interest. Like I'm particularly interested in rocks, so I'm focused on U.S. Geological Survey and cuts to the USGS. There's EPA's cuts. Every cut to the EPA affects us. You're talking budget cuts. Yeah, budget yeah. cut to EPA affects us because a good portion of the funding for Pennsylvania DEP comes from EPA. So it's not a, a neutral thing that you just cut something in Washington and there's no effect. It's going to severely affect us as Pennsylvania citizens. So it is more than just climate science. Oh, yes. A mm -hmm. lot more. All right. All right. So, Jenny Sassman, you uh, teach at the, the Chester County Technical College High School. And uh, yeah. so I wanted to talk to you about this from an educational standpoint. Where does education come into this? It comes in, uh, to, in to play in a, in a very big way. Um, because of the success with the EPA and a lot of groups have been working very hard to save, you know, Chesapeake Bay and, you know, clean up the air. Um, we also are fighting on the educational standpoint, especially with, you know, standard, standardized testing. Um, standardized testing has affected our whole world as teachers. Um, it's putting in a canned curriculum to teach one way. Here's the right answer. Here's the wrong answer. There's very little wiggle room as to, you know, to start a kind of debate and an open conversation about, what's going on. Um, it's, it's very frustrating being a teacher right now. If you ask one, they'll probably tell you for, for quite some time. Yeah, I actually had uh, Pennsylvania Secretary of Education Pedro Rivera on the program yesterday where you know a good part of the, the conversation had to do with standardized tests. We know that probably every educator in America hates them <laughs> and we're all trying to find another way to measure student achievement. I have to admit that saying canned answers was the first time that, I, that I'd, I had heard that. What, When it comes specifically to science, though, in education, how does science play into uh, standardized tests? I mean, is it something that there needs to be more thought, more critical thinking than just checking a box? Absolutely. Absolutely. There needs to be more problem solving and more approaching um, anything that you need to solve with an open mind and um, a set of, you know, intelligences at a, at a higher level thinking. 
um, playing. And if you can't do that, and students who ask me, well, what's the right answer? And what do I need to get an A? It's very frustrating. So that's not what science is all about. And, you know, speaking more broadly, STEM. Um, STEM is finding a problem, uh, being able to identify that problem, uh, thinking critically about how to solve that problem, delegating, you know, a team members who specialize in that and finding a way to, to do the research and see if, so you're not reinventing the wheel and not getting frustrated by failure and you know, celebrating your successes when, when they come. Mm-hmm. Uh, standardized, I'm sorry. Go ahead, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Standardized testing um, does not go in that direction at all. We are, we are teaching to the last century, and that needs to change very quickly. When you say teaching to the last century, uh, and I, I, I know I'm asking you questions that, a question here that uh, there are a lot of very, very intelligent people have, uh, you know, weighed over the last few years. But in your mind, what would be teaching in the 21st century? If we gave our students the opportunity to search for problems in their own sphere, they would be learning with a carrot rather than a stick. Uh, Standardized testing teaches through fear. I choose to teach through love and show uh, my students how do we want to approach this? And they have a carrot. For example, if a car is not starting, I'm like, how are we going to go about this? Doing the research, doing, you know, diagnosis. You know, does it need a battery? Does it need an alternator? Is it an engine problem? And, And going from there. That's, that's, those are real-world, higher-level thinking um, ways to, to teach. And, and I don't see myself as a teacher. I see myself as a lead learner, because I don't always know all the right answers. Mm. So, Jay Parrish, let me uh, turn back to you for uh, just a moment. Uh, you know, we were talking about climate change. We were talking about the budget cuts with EPA. We are talking about the budget cuts in other scientific areas. Um, is it significant, I think I know the answer to this, but is it significant that this is the first year of the Trump administration that this is happening? Well, I think there's a, a direct correlation. I think you can look at uh, the organizers of this, who are uh, five co-workers at um, a um, Acadia Neuro Rehabilitation a Medical Facility who just got together and decided we ought to have a march here based on what's happening around them in the world. So like Kat, Carolyn, Juliana, Liz, and Lauren put this whole thing together um, on their own. And uh, that kind of grassroots activity we haven't seen before. When you say that there, there doesn't seem to be as much, I don't know if you used the word respect, but that uh, scientists are, and science is not held in uh, the kind of place that it, it used to be. Why is that? Well, the, the problem with science is it deals with, with facts, which can be uncomfortable. Um, it, you're able to predict, and so you can say how things are going to be. And if you have um, an agenda that says, I, I don't want that to be the way it is, then it becomes very um, uh, disturbing if you have somebody who's contradicting you on things. Um, and so there's, you may have seen in the news yesterday, um, there's a, the Department of Justice is going to stop uh, working with scientists on developing good forensic science. Um, there's, it's just a, a cutback in every every area where it might contradict what somebody might have as a plan. You know, there are cynics out there, 
and I hate to even bring this up, but there are because I've heard people who I don't know if I'd say are anti-science, but are critical of, of, of science and scientists who have said, well, what America's researchers, what their scientists are looking for, they're looking for money from the federal government. They're looking for grants. This is how they make their living. They don't get these grants. Then, you know, their, their research. So they have a, a, a motivation to come up with research that just keeps the, the money flowing. How do you respond to that? Well, if you want to make a lot of money, doing research isn't the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get rich doing that, huh? No. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, 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 there there is that component of it. You have to find research funds. You have to, to uh, but you aren't going to get funded again if you if you fudge things. You have to be able to show you use the scientific method, and you have realistic results. So there's there's no incentive to. Uh, to make things up or anything like that. You know, I, I think something you said just a few minutes ago is probably one of the most disturbing things that we do see across this country is that, that when someone does not agree with a fact, they can find another place, whether it's in the media or, you know, anywhere, that they can find another place that will justify their, their point of view. And that is disturbing. It's, it's hard to base a society that is educated and, uh, you know, is looking ahead to the future when we can't agree on basic facts sometimes. And I worked in state government for a number of years, and it was amazing to me how little politicians sought out scientific information. It, it very rarely happened. Where were they looking for it? I I don't really know. <laughs> I, but, I assume mean, the lobbyists. But why, but why wouldn't? Yeah. Well, okay. I hate to think of that too. But why wouldn't they go to science? Because they were afraid that they would hear something they wouldn't agree with. Um, I honestly don't know. It, I think it varies probably with each each subject, mm -hmm. uh, and it may just be ignorance that there is that scientific information available to them. Mm -hmm. um, Jenny Sassaman, let's talk about young people again. We were talking about education. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, what, what Jay Parrish just said, uh, that we have observed it many times in the last decade or so of uh, people seeking out information that aligns with their own point of view and uh, maybe not uh, seeking facts. Uh, what about young people? I mean, I'm, I'm curious as to... You know, what they've learned, people uh, from 12 to 18, you know, what they've learned from their parents, what their opinions are. Uh, do they have opinions on this? Um, uh, many of my students live in a rural area, and there's a lot of times where I say to fellow teachers, um, our culture holds us back a lot of times. Um, and let me explain that. Uh, Americans in general, they, they tend to be independent and they want to do what they want, when they want to do it, and how they want to do it. And when that interferes with something that might be a scientific truth, there's usually the ignoring of whatever that is. And let me give you an example. A lot of my students enjoy um, what they call straight piping their cars, which is cutting out a cat, which is a catalytic converter, which you know helps with uh, emissions. And uh, they like to roll coal, which is blowing a big black cloud of, of smoke. And I think they, they usually use a point system to do it over Priuses. Um, again, it's, it's a little bit of a protest against regulations that they see as constricting and conforming to something that they don't want. Um, I, I fight against that with them a lot, and I use love and education to try to explain, do you really 
want a world where everybody has to use inhalers because if we keep polluting, you know, then you know, all of us, we might have a world like that. I have to tell you, I'm learning some new uh, terminology here today. Roll coal. I have not heard that before. I don't know. I guess I have to get back amongst some young people here. But uh, <laughs> now, where is uh, where is the Chester County uh, Technical College High School? We are closest to West Grove, which is still a, a whopping four miles away from our school. Um, a lot of people like to say we're in the middle of nowhere, and it, it's. I like to call it the center of the universe because our school is a really amazing school. Well, yeah, West Grove, and and you're pretty close to uh, Maryland and Delaware as well. Yes, we are. Yeah, so you are in a rural area of uh, of Southern Chester County. So, uh, Jenny, I'll ask you, and then I'll ask Jay as well. What do you want as a participant? And for these organized March for Science events, what do you want people to get out of it? What, do you, what kind of attention do you want? What kind of awareness are you looking for? I'd really like people to snap out of their complacency. Um, I'd like people to listen to stories, as Jay said, that they don't want to hear, that they don't believe. Um, some scientific truths are uncomfortable and they might clash with a religious belief or something that you've always done. It might be a, a great family tradition. There's, there's so many parameters. It, it's difficult to say that there, there's one thing. There's several situations. But I would like, I wish people, every person who comes to the march or listens to it or hears about it becomes more aware of how fragile our Earth is and, you know, makes accommodations in their own lives and encourages others um, to keep the earth as, as clean and as livable and as wonderful as it, as it is. Jay, what about you? Well, I would like people to come and enjoy the day, um, just be together. I think one of the, the greatest strengths we have is humor and the, and the most formidable weapon. Um, so I'd like people to come and, and just uh, celebrate what they enjoy about the world. Can I also point out that uh, some of the other speakers uh, that are going to be there, one of them is Harry Campbell, who is a UCC pastor, uh, who will be talking about that, and, and Matt Johnson from uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Uh, and Mayor Gray, who is always uh, entertaining to listen to. Mm, yeah, yes, uh, and uh, familiar with uh, with all those people. And the two of you will be speaking as well, right? Yeah, so that's at yeah. from 10 to 12 in the square at in Lancaster. And technically, we're having a rally for science because we don't have a permit to march. We have a permit to, to gather. Okay, so <laughs> it is a rally. I want to thank both of you, the March for Science, uh, 500, more than 500 locations around the world on April 22nd, uh, Earth Day, closest one to in central Pennsylvania is in downtown Lancaster. Jenny Sassman, Jay Parrish, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott, for having us. Uh, unofficially, our unofficial Education Week continues on Smart Talk tomorrow. It is a Smart Talk road trip. We will be on the campus of Lebanon Valley College tomorrow. We'll talk about uh, the benefits or uh, the future, if you will, of uh, a liberal arts education at Lebanon Valley. Also going to talk about uh, a school where music means so much. We'll talk about a music education. And uh, now, getting away from the education part, but uh, you probably heard the story about a letter from Abraham Lincoln going to the Lebanon County Historical Society. That's tomorrow.